This week's episode is sponsored by the Loyola Marymount University Online Doctoral Program in Educational Leadership for Social Justice. It's designed for working professionals who want to create a more just and equitable future. This LMU doctorate degree is offered completely online and centers on values-based education, equipping graduates to lead meaningful change in their organizations. To learn more, please visit soe.lmu.edu slash doctoral. That's soe.lmu.edu slash doctoral. Hello and welcome to Jesuitical, a podcast by the young, hip, and lay editors of America Media. That lay part means we aren't Jesuits, but we work with them. Join us each week for a smart Catholic take on faith, culture, and the news, often over drinks. I'm Ashley McKinless, and I'm joined by Zach Davis. Good to be with you, Ashley. Hello, Zach. I'm excited that you're moving to my neighborhood, fingers crossed. I know. Well, the ink is not spilt or dried yet, but a lease is being FedExed to me from Park Slope to Virginia for me to sign because my current lease is up on May 31st, and I'm, I'm making the leap, so... Yeah, well, looking can, forward uh, to some socially distanced uh, meetups in the park, maybe. Yeah, that would be nice. It's been a long time. You know. Zencaster meetups just don't quite, they're not the same yeah. as our normal rapport. They don't cut it, but at least we have delicious beverages. What are we drinking this week, Zach? This week we're drinking old fashions, right? Um, so some I, I choose to make my old fashions with bourbon, but. Um, mm. Is there any other way? I think you could do it with rye whiskey as well, but mm. I don't think it's as good. So that's yeah. what we got this week. Old fashioned. Cheers. All right. Cheers. And who are we talking to this week? This week, we are happy to bring back to the show Tara Isabella Burton. Uh, she appeared on Jesuitical way back in July 2018, but she is out with a new book this June uh, called Strange Rights, New Religions for a Godless World. Um, and we are excited to have her back on. Yeah. So a lot has been written about what to make of the nuns, the N-O-N-E-S, the people who are choosing not to identify with a particular religious institution or group. But Tara's new book is uh, a fresh take on that group and what are some of the attributes that they are bringing to American society and what we have to learn about the future of religion and culture from them. So stay tuned. But first, we have Signs of the Times, the part of our show where we sift through the Catholic news of the week so you don't have to. Our first story is back in Rome, where on Monday, Pope Francis marked what would have been Pope John Paul II's 100th birthday at a mass at the altar of the tomb of St. John Paul II. Yes. In his homily, he spoke of the second longest pope in the church's history as a man of deep prayer who sought to be close to his people. Um, pope John Paul II traveled to 129 countries during his pontificate. And this was not only significant because uh, it was St. John Paul II's 100th birthday, but this is also the first time since churches in Italy were shut down that Pope Francis has celebrated Mass with a crowd. Right. There were over 100 people there. Um, they were you know, respecting social distancing protocols. Most of those people were uh, women religious who were part of the choir, but there were also um, a lay faithful and, and the Polish ambassador to the Holy See in attendance. Um, so they were there to mark this occasion because in Italy, uh, like other places around the world, churches are just starting to reopen after the coronavirus pandemic. Yeah, and Italy is not the only place where church is starting to come back. Uh, our national correspondent, Mike O'Loughlin, filed a story this week detailing where 
the U.S. is at in terms of when we're coming back to mass. And so we thought it would be a good idea to bring him on the show to give us an overview of where we're at and where we're going. Uh, Mike, welcome back to Jesuitical. Hey, Zach. Hi, Ashley. Hello. Good to have you on. Uh, so first, can, how widespread are reopenings? Is this happening everywhere or in just certain parts of the United States? It is all over the place, uh, kind of like how states are reopening at different paces, uh, depending on where they're located. That's how we're seeing churches respond too. So uh, in some places like Texas, churches just kind of reopened last month, but it's been pretty slow, actually. Catholic dioceses were among the first uh, churches to close, and they look like uh, a lot of them will be among the last to open. But what was interesting last week, we had announcements from some big dioceses like Chicago, Baltimore, Detroit, kind of laying out a plan for how they would get churches to reopen. Um, there's a lot of changes coming, though. We wrote about this last month, that when we finally do get back to Mass, uh, it's not going to look like it did before this all began. So why are bishops deciding to reopen now? What are some of the criteria that they're using to make some of these decisions? It's a good question. Uh, some of the bigger dioceses are kind of working in concert with public health officials. So here in Chicago, for example, they worked with the governor's office and the State Department of Health to come up with a plan for all six dioceses in Illinois. And as different parts of the state reopen, that will determine when uh, churches are allowed to reopen. So they're looking at things like the infection rate in a given area, uh, the hospital capacity, and they're saying that it's, there's no rush to get back to mass. They're planning to open first for small gatherings, for weddings, funerals, baptisms. Uh, they're going to open for private prayer. And even when churches reopen, this is across the country now, the Sunday masses will be small. Uh, a lot of churches are capping at 25 or 50% capacity. They're adding extra masses to meet the demand. Uh, there's no sign yet how they'll limit capacity. I don't know if it'll be a first come, first serve, or if they'll do tickets. I know here in Chicago, they're considering having people make reservations for when they want to go to mass and then capping the number that way. And then even when you're at mass, there'll be things like required ma uh, masks for all the worshipers. Uh, social distancing, so families can sit together if you live together, but if you don't live with who you're going to Mass with, you have to sit apart. So Mike, where churches are reopening, is is the obligation to attend Sunday Mass uh, still dispensed, or are people expected to go now, even if they don't feel comfortable? Yeah, it, it's, so I mean, anyone who goes to Mass knows that a, a kind of a large part of the congregation tends to be older people, and older people are more at risk for uh, covid so in a lot of dioceses, they've kept the dispensation from Sunday Mass. Um, they've kept that going, at least through September. Uh, some dioceses say it'll probably go for as long as uh, COVID remains with us. So it could be a while. And what are some of the risks of reopening and coming back to Mass? One of the things we've seen, um, there's been kind of a, a movement, I would say small but vocal, of Catholics who want the churches to be reopened and have masses going on. Uh, there was some offense taken that um, religious gatherings were called non-essential, and thus churches had to shut down during the pandemic in a lot of places. I, I think what church leaders are trying to get across now, uh, we saw this in Baltimore and Chicago, was going to church is not like going to the store uh, because you're crowding a lot of people in one place. Uh, you're staying together for an hour. Uh, most public health guidelines right now say that you should keep gatherings to under 10 people and try to keep them short, 15 minutes or so. And that's just not what happens in church. So there's this risk of a, a large group of people coming together uh, and spending a lot of time together. And we saw early on uh, in the coronavirus uh, pandemic that churches were responsible for a lot of kind of clusters of infection. Um, and I think uh, especially Catholic leaders are aware of that, and they're trying their best to say, 
we know this is frustrating for people. We know Catholics want to be in church, but we have to be responsible citizens. So they're trying to balance that desire to be together praying with the public health reality that this is just a difficult time right now. All right. So what are you going to be watching for in the next few weeks as churches actually implement these plans? Uh, a story I'm following right now is in Texas, as I mentioned, um, churches were among the first to reopen. Um, that state did not have a strong stay-at-home order in place for very long. And churches are now opening up as malls and restaurants and bars and things like that are also opening. Uh, But we saw in Houston, a Catholic parish opened and three of the priests who live in the community that run the parish uh, tested positive for uh, coronavirus and they were asymptomatic. So that's a very dangerous situation where you're bringing together crowds of people and there's an asymptomatic carrier or three of them. Uh, And they've now shut that church down. So I'll be curious how churches deal with this. How are they able to get access to testing for ministers and parishioners? Are they enforcing masks and social distancing? It'll be interesting to see how they deal with uh, what inevitably will be pop-ups of cases around the country. Well, you can follow Mike's reporting at americamagazine.org, and we will be sure to include Mike's report in our show notes. Thank you so much for joining us today, Mike. Thanks, guys. All right, Zach, what's our last story? On Sunday, ESPN aired the last two episodes of The Last Dance, a series on Michael Jordan and the Chicago Bulls' 1997-1998 quest to capture their sixth championship in eight years. Now, you might not think this is a Catholic news story, but just wait, it is. (laughs) All right, I'm going to let you make the case, Zach, because I I did watch this series, and it's fantastic, even as a casual um, basketball viewer, but I need you to make the case that this is a Catholic news story. So you wrote an article making that case that people can find on AmericanMagazine.org in which you tackle the question of hagiography. So first, tell me what that means. Right. So hagiography is a genre of writing that is detailing the lives of the saints. And so I was sort of inspired by this documentary and the question that we ask every week on this podcast of if you could canonize one person, living or dead, Catholic or not, who would it be and why? And the last dance is really a 10-hour answer to that question that says we should all canonize Michael Jordan, right? He is the greatest basketball player, the greatest athlete of all time, and we're going to sit and tell you why. Right, and so like in the piece, you don't really say whether you think Michael Jordan is a saint or the greatest player of all time or not, but you kind of question whether it's a good or a bad thing to make saints of people. Um, You know, there's that famous Dorothy Day quote that she says something along the lines of like, don't call me a saint. I don't want to be dismissed that easily. So how do you see that kind of intersecting with this secular canonization of Michael Jordan? Well, the reasons that Dorothy Day didn't want to be called a saint, at least what I think is oftentimes saints are kind of whitewashed, put on a pedestal. Um, people look at their lives and they say, oh, well, they could do that. They were saintly. I could never do that. So what you're saying is you could be Michael Jordan? No, but what I'm saying is that's the exact reason that Michael Jordan wants to be canonized, right? And this is not a documentary. Michael Jordan had control over, from the very beginning, what they were allowed to film in 98, when all of this footage was going to sort of come together as Uh, a 10-part documentary series. He had editorial control, final yes, no, over what made it in the doc or not. So this is his framing over what we all get to see. And the thing that he wants to tell is that 
no one, no one is ever going to be able to do what I did, right? That is the overwhelming theme of the project. It's as much a chance for just casual sports fans to sort of gawk at, um, as much as it is a, a shot across the bow to current and future players that a lot of people are going to try and call you the next Michael Jordan. Guess what? You're never going to do this. Watch. <laughs> um, so let me see if I got this right. So you're kind of saying that like, it's okay to maybe make myths or legends out of people if that myth or legend is inspiring enough that it makes other people want to be better. Right. Well, here's the thing is people wrote on Twitter and other places that this is not a documentary. It is a hagiography. And I, that's typically meant as a criticism. But the the fact of the matter is, is I think it's actually a good thing because whether we like it or not, legends, stories, myths, hagiography, it's compelling. It's super compelling yeah. and attractive. And when we read the lives of the saints, you know, sure, there's that part of us that says, oh, I could never do that. Well, they're too holy. But there's also the stirring within us that says, I should do that, right? Like, I have to do that. If we look at St. Ignatius of Loyola, part of his whole origin story is he's stuck in bed and the only book he has around, or one of the only books he has around is a biography of different saints. And so he's reading about St. Francis of Assisi and St. Dominic and says, what if I lived my life like that, right? And so for the million people who watch The Last Dance, there's going to be at least a couple in this next generation who who see that and go, I could do that. And you know what? I'm going to put in the work. Yeah. Well, I'm sorry that can't be you, but it's a great piece. And not people yet. can check not it yet. out. I'm, I'm not out of my prime yet. <laughs> I, so we'll see. All right. Check out the piece at americamagazine.org. Joining us from New York City is Tara Isabella Burton. She is the author of Strange Rites, New Religions for a Godless World. Welcome back to Jesuitical, Tara. Oh, well, thank you so much for having me under uh, slightly different circumstances than last time. But uh, glad to be I know. It's, it's more fun when we can drink in the studio, but... Um... Do you, do you have a drink for this interview? I do. I do actually have Georgian brandy. I was going to make an old fashioned and then just sort of went, no, I don't have the energy. So just a bit of uh, just <laughs> old, old George, Georgian brandy uh, that, that we were able to order from the local wine shop. And, and you mean Georgia, the country? Yes. Right? Yeah. yeah. Uh, I used to live there and uh, have a particular fondness for Georgian booze of all varieties. So you know, it's, it's, it's five o'clock somewhere. Yep. It's five o'clock. It's, half, it's evening in Georgia. So there you go. We'll roll <laughs> with it. <laughs> so, Tara, we wanted to bring you on the show again uh, to talk about your new book, Strange Rights. Um, and a lot of people have written about the nuns, N O N E S, um, those who are not affiliated with any particular religion. Um, and your book kind of looks at these same people, but through a different lens. You're not defining them by what they lack, which is organized religion, but kind of the new, what you call remixed religions that they're taking up. Um, so can you can you def- can you say why you wanted to to change the terms a bit and what you mean by remixed religion? Sure. So um, one of the things is um, I resist in talking about the N O N E nuns is that religious affiliation is such a small part of 
religious or spiritual life. Um, about 72% of the self-professed religious nuns say they believe in uh, a higher power. And 20% uh, say they believe in, I think the, the, the poll turns it, the Judeo-Christian God is the way that the, the poll wording puts it. And I, what I find so fascinating then is, is that when we talk about religiosity and religiosity in America, what we're talking about in terms of the quote-unquote decline seems to be as much a question of institutions as it is of sort of personal religious feeling. And you list to, to sort of frame the conversation uh, a few like subcategories of, of nuns. Uh, could you tell us what what types of descriptors are a little bit more helpful? So one of them I was familiar with, which is the the spiritual but not religious group. That's probably in my experience. That's been the most popular person I've encountered in my life. But you list uh, a few others as well. Yes. Yep. So um, these aren't necessarily mutually exclusive categories, and there's sort of different ways that you can talk about spirituality. So one person might belong to one or more of these, but the the ones I call the hybrids are the sort of biggest other group alongside the spiritual but not religious. So these are people who affiliate with the religion, but whose uh, rituals and practices are more eclectic. So I um, like to go back to a, a study that Pew did in late 2018 about new age beliefs, uh, or so they call them, and they list um, reincarnation and psychics and the presence of energy, spiritual energy and physical objects, and astrology. And what was really striking is that about, I want to say 60% of the population uh, self-identified as, as believing in at least one. Um, that roughly held true across religious affiliation, so that the nuns were as likely on pretty much every metric to believe in, say, reincarnation as were self-identified Christians. Between 20 and 30%, I can't remember the ex uh, exact number now, of self-identified Christians say they believe in reincarnation. Now, from the point of view of, um, I might say, traditional Christian Orthodox doctrine, um, those two things seem pretty incompatible. I think that tells us something about the sheer scope of remixing in contemporary American society. Now, I do want to add a caveat here, which is that it's not like there's an image of historical Christianity that was always perfectly orthodox or in which your average person 100% believed and affirmed uh, everything that theologians might have affirmed in the academic sphere. In the 18th century, for example, like an enormous variety of practices such as uh, divination and folk magic were incredibly popular. So it's not that remixing is is new, and certainly we have more information about your average person's uh, belief systems than we might have when looking at this problem historically, but it's nevertheless the case that alongside the spiritual but not religious, you also have these hybrids who, like the spiritual but not religious, are still creating their own individualized belief systems, mixing and matching both within and without institutions. Um, a third category I talk about is is sort of a, a cousin of the spiritual but not religious, which is the the faithful nuns. So people who um, identify as religiously unaffiliated, but also say they believe in a higher power. And they might not necessarily identify as spiritual or use the language of spirituality, but they're still nevertheless not, one might say, completely secular or within a completely secular mindset. 
One thing you write, uh, this power to pick and choose things that that feel right or that match your own kind of intuitions. Um, you say that in convergence with the rise of internet culture is kind of the key to to understanding remix spirituality. You actually kind of pinpoint the or <laughs> the modern origins with with the rise of Harry Potter online fandom. Um, can you talk a little bit about how you see the internet and digital communities that arise there um, leading to this new form of spirituality? So in my book, I link the rise of a very particular cultural sensibility about how we consume texts, how we commune, including in disembodied digital spaces, and our relationship to authority as roughly um, revolutionizing around the early days of the internet and the development of free social media listservs. Right. So you, you draw this comparison between like, you couldn't have the reformation without the printing press and we wouldn't have remixed religion without, without internet. internet. (laughs) Exactly. Exactly. Like this is, this is the sort of equivalent of the Protestant reformation for uh, the contemporary internet age. And I think Harry Potter um, is an extremely good example of this phenomenon in which fan culture, which already had been kind of a much smaller and more circumscribed thing in the 70s and 80s with your, your Star Trek fandom or, or what have you, but once it became democratized, once it became something you could do on the internet, and once uh, cultural conversations about prop, uh, cultural properties became something that was sort of normalized in terms of self-definition, like what are you a fan of? Um, All these things happened around the same time. And the popularity of the Harry Potter books in particular, which basically, um, I think it was between the third and the fourth book of the Harry Potter series coming out, the personal computer rate of ownership in America increased, I want to say, by 500%, um, give or take. And so... You see this sort of drastic shift in an understanding of texts, not just as something that you should sort of read and you consume privately, but as sort of the, the, the jumping off point for a communal conversation. The rise of fan fiction as this really like normalized part of millennial culture. The idea that you might consume a text, but then the next step is like, do you like the ending? Do you want to change the ending? Do you want to go uh, read another text where the ending happened the way that you wanted it, or these characters are together? You have people you can talk about these texts with. And by text, of course, I mean you know, TV and, and film as well as books. But the sense in which the the fans or consumers have a kind of creative ownership and creative relationship to what they're consuming, that this is not a top-down hierarchy. I would argue that that broader cultural sensibility has also shaped how we think about religious texts, but also sort of ideas as texts, that we are culturally less inclined to receive from a top-down perspective uh, prescriptions. There is a hunger for, well, I want to I customize this. I want this to be resonant with me. This, these, these are these stories, these facts, these dictates are a starting off point for my own creative reimagining of, of what the world should be. Pretty sure, Zach, Zach you were on a Quidditch team, right? Is, I was. I was actually as- thinking this, <laughs> my, I always like to say that like I learned religion, or at least I learned morality from Harry Potter before I was ever really religious. And your, your book, Tara, made me think that the very first 
online communities that I was a part of was MuggleNet.com. Mm-hmm. And my, the very first podcast, when those were still in their early days, was this thing called MuggleCast. And that was my first introduction to any type of community outside of my own geographic space. And I feel like we saw this recently with the way that people reacted towards something like Game of Thrones mm-hmm. when they were so furious about how that ended, right? They felt like this was not just George R.R. R. Martin's story or or HBO's story, but this was their story too, right? And these people messed it up and we're going to fix it on our own over here. Absolutely. It's that sense of um, the the worlds of text or the stories as something that is not owned by the creator. Like, I think it's, it's so telling. Um, since the days of the television without pity forums, if anyone remembers those, uh, showrunners were often referred to as a, was it TPTB, the powers that be, which is sort of quite theologically resonant itself, that like the powers that be might tell you something about a show, but like, here's what's, what's really happened. And I, I think that something that I find really fascinating is, um, particularly as, um, JK Rowling has, um, made statements that have alienated her from a large part of her fan base, um, particularly her, um, what seems to be her views or her implied views on trans people um, have kind of alienated a lot of the fans who grew up in Harry Potter. And so much of the way in which that discourse has happened is not, well, this means Harry Potter is bad and we shouldn't read it. It's you don't own Harry Potter, JK Rowling. Like we will still talk about these texts. We will still kind of incorporate these world, write our own fiction. Um, let's talk about Ron and Harry and Hermione in these new settings. And there is a sort of, what I find a fascinating dynamic that just because even for you know, hardcore Harry Potter fans, this world is, is real and exists to be mined and, re- and reimagined, even when the creator herself is seen as... Um, a heretic. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> like, like one of the, the most fascinating versions of these were those who said like, here are the values of the Harry Potter world and here are um, sort of the, the values of, of equality and tolerance and, and you, J.K. Rowling, have like betrayed Hogwarts. And that vision of a, a kind of divorce between the creator and her product, I think, is, is so fascinating and also reflective of a, a wider way in which we culturally interact with stories, at least those of us who grew up with the internet in that way. You're, you you mentioned values, and that kind of gets to the question I I was having. Um, that like what when does intense fandom become religion? Because there have been people following like sports teams and musicians um, with that same intense devotion, and you know questioning the <laughs> the right thinking of coaches or <laughs> whatever for for a while. Um, so what what makes this religion and not just very intense? devotion to a a book or characters or a TV show? So the way that I would frame the question isn't, is it a religion or not, which I think can possibly obscure some of the the nuances, but to say, what elements of religious life do we find in fan culture? A sense of meaning in the world, uh, a sense of purpose, uh, the individual's journey within that world, a sense of community, how we interact with one another in the world, and a sense of ritual, what we do that kind of grounds us in that broader story. And I think that that fandom, when it comes to the level of religious adjacent phenomenon, when it fulfills uh, a religious need we have, happens at the level where these communities become central to our identity. So it's not just something we do or acquaintances, but but who we are 
um, being being a Harry Potter fan, being a you know, Harry Hermione shipper, what have you, this becomes integral to our sense of self. And also, I think, ways in which our understanding of certain cultural properties comes to shape in, a, in an intense way our wider sense of meaningfulness in the world. And actually, I think Harry Potter uh, is again a great example because of the extraordinary effectiveness it had on that front. So not only is it something that is uh, culturally familiar to a lot of Americans in this way that um, you know we know these stories better than we know a lot of, um, let's say, biblical stories. There's actually um, a set of studies that would imply that more Americans know the names of the four Hogwarts houses than they do the names of the four Gospels. Um, but also the idea that these books are, are formative. And there, there have been a series of studies, I talk about in my book, that sort of simply reading sections of Harry Potter, particularly those about um, wars or ill will between the muggle-born and quote-unquote pure-blooded wizards, that just reading these passages alone will change and have changed the minds of uh, readers on, on certain sort of scores of, of tolerance. And obviously these are, these are narrow studies, these are not exhaustive. But I do think that the way in which, I don't know, one talks about evil and good and what values are is certainly shaped by um, the stories that we share as a culture. And the, the Harry Potter narrative is indeed culturally potent and influential in a way that I would liken to a religious myth, at least uh, for, the, for, for people who grew up with it and um, that was a bit younger. Now, you mentioned, you, you sort of use Harry Potter as this, uh, as the, Harry Potter's the genesis for like our online communities. And you mentioned that wellness culture is the theology behind remix culture. So could you explain to our listeners, what do you mean by that? And why is uh, SoulCycle uh, in charge of the uh, the new theology of wellness. Sure, absolutely. So, wellness culture, I would argue, um, sort of is predicated on a few assumptions about the world. Um, what I roughly call like best selfism, and one of these is, and it, it, this is indeed rooted to a broader American uh, religious and spiritual tradition. You can find it, for example, in the the New Thought movement of the 19th century, or uh, even the transcendentalists a little bit earlier, but this idea that you are your own authority on the good, the right, the truth, that sort of society is conspiring against you in some way, the establishment is conspiring against you in some way, but you are all that you can rely on. And this is, again, a sort of very popular recurring trope in American religious thought. Paired to that is this notion that self-improvement, be it by diet, exercise, or other forms of kind of self-purification that are also somewhat aesthetic in nature, become um, a kind of moral responsibility that your self is, is, is kind of divine. And if you are not taking care of yourself in this way, a way that often demands uh, time and money uh, embedded in contemporary capitalist structures, um, this is a form not just of like vanity or, or you know, something that you do to, to, I know you would eat fruit to not get scurvy, but this kind of spiritualized sense of like, you must practice this kind of self-care to be a worthy person, to value yourself in the right way. It sounds very Protestant. Is that, is that correct or misplaced? Yes. I mean, I think that the rough trajectory of it 
is deeply wedded to the kind of inward emotive tradition that you find in the Protestant tradition more generally, and particularly in like the American Protestant tradition with its various waves of inward-looking pietist fervor from the Great Awakening to the rise of the contemporary evangelical movement. This idea that there is a kind of a a kind of inwardness and inward focus that is that is necessary, but also that your material place, your circumstances, your worldly success is rooted to your inward worth. Um, I'm thinking now of like the prosperity gospel, which I want to say as many as 40% of evangelical Christians uh, say they subscribe to, which is just briefly the idea that if you believe in the right way or tithe in the right way, uh, you will be rewarded with financial success. And there's versions of this for for health and happiness and other forms of material success. Yeah. I was going to say, this all sounds very expensive. Like soul cycle, I cannot afford soul cycle. I can't afford anything that Gwyneth Paltrow is trying to sell on Goop. Um, so a lot of this seems like it's uh, uh, aimed or practiced by, you know, pretty wealthy, maybe urban people. So is, th- is this a pretty, would you say, if this remixed religion of new age wellness culture, um, one, does it only include the wealthy? And two, like where does that where does that leave the marginalized in these people's worldview? So I think it's absolutely uh, either for the wealthy explicitly or coded as sort of aspirational in a way where the luxury of time and the luxury of doing this is wedded to the kind of vision of success presented by these um, wellness empires, which is to say, you know, soul cycle itself is extremely expensive and unattainable and for a very particular subset of people who are people with the time and funds to afford it. At the same time, I think wellness culture more broadly kind of mimics soul cycle in part to mimic this kind of like, this is a fancy, exclusive luxury good thing. Uh, a couple of years ago, for example, when Weight Watchers, which was, is not historically, um, uh, particularly expensive or, or upmarket organization compared to something like SoulCycle, did its rebrand. It uh, it rebranded to WW, a wellness organization. And what was so fascinating to me in that is that the way in which that branding happened for um, a much more quote-unquote accessible, affordable institution was still pointing towards like, it was using the rhetoric of Goop, of SoulCycle, and placing it at a different price point. But I think absolutely it's impossible to separate wellness from a kind of vision of capitalism because it's also self-reinforcing. It's you go to work and then you do this on your lunch hour. You know, you go to SoulCycle on your lunch hour, you get your special sandwich um, from or salad from Sweetgreen on your lunch break, you do your meditation on your commute. There's a sense in which these are, these are sort of socially le- legitimate spaces for quote-unquote leisure that by somehow taking care of yourself, the narrative goes, you're like ready to go back to work. You're ready to go back to your high power, demanding, high paying job. And so even when you're resisting or the narrative is one of resistance, you know, you're, you're baking your own bread or you're eating something uh, pure and authentic from a farmer's market or, or, you know, not containing toxins or anything else that is coded as authentic, real, not part of the capitalist grind. It's still kind of coded as something that you do as an escape in order to let you re-enter that world. These are not 
wholesale lifestyle changes that mean you're, you know, moving to the wilderness and, um, I don't know, running along the river every day and lifting trees and getting fit by building a house and cutting wood or whatever the sort of extreme example of this is outside of a capitalist system. It's, it's very much in dialogue with a vision of material success and time, but also time that is itself delineated by the workday or the white collar workday, at least. More than just class, I was wondering while reading your book about sort of race lurking in the background in the sense that if we look at the Americans that belong to more, or at least in the popular imagination, belong to more traditional institutional groups, I'm thinking of Latino Catholics or Muslim immigrants, they tend to be much more community oriented. Is is this remix religion, if it's in a sense, you have to have the the privilege, the class privilege to be able to assess and choose the values in your own life. Is there also, um, where is race in all of this? So, I mean, I think that remixed culture um, that I talk about in the book is predominantly more of a white phenomenon. Although that said, um, the data on the unaffiliated, um, there aren't huge discrepancies. Uh, It's not like disproportionately white. Or um, that said, I think that so much of remixed culture, which as you say, is predicated on the idea of a kind of I in my position of, of pure desire and, and picking and choosing what, what I want is predicated a ki- on a kind of privileged position that does lend itself to being a mentality that privilege only supports. Yeah, that seems like a a uh, mark against this sort of trend in my own mind. And I'm also wondering about how it affects, I don't know, our our life in community with different people. Because, you know, if you belong to a Catholic church, it's physically based, you have no choice who your neighbors are, you're going to interact with them. I mean, there is pair shopping and whatnot, but for the most part, you're going to bump into people who are different from you if you go to a Catholic church. And with a remixed religion, you can, you can choose to be with people who agree with you on everything and are in your class. And so I'm wondering how this, I don't know, do you see that as a downside or as absolutely? (laughs) Okay. (laughs) Because there's, there's the element of, you know, people who felt on the margins being able to find themselves or marginalized from mainstream culture, finding people like them through internet communities. But I feel like that does come at a cost. Absolutely. And I think that's exactly, exactly the tension where on the one hand, as you say, people whose experience of traditional religion, um, organized religion, is one of marginalization, can find uh, where institutions have failed them, new ways of gathering, new forms of community. Um, One of the the most interesting statistics I came across in the research for this book is the fact that um, queer Americans are massively disproportionately unaffiliated. So almost 50% of Americans who self-identify as queer also self-identify as a nun compared to about 23% of the American general public. So if you are queer, if you are, um, let's say, a a woman who feels that the gender roles or gender expectations uh, of their religious community have been uh, a source of marginalization, anyone who, who for any reason does see institutions, um, religious institutions here, as a as a mechanism for hierarchy, cruelty, oppression. Of course, it makes perfect sense that that the sort of the remix model of of seeking other people out, of seeking new ways of being, or new ways of gathering, of 
of chosen family would be necessary. At the same time, the idea that, as you say, to only interact with people who who share our affinities or desires um, uh, or, you know, what we want to buy or our personal brands align or whatever version of that narrative you, you want to, whatever words you want to use, um, does mean that there's a, a kind of divorce from the a necessity to, to engage with, with the given world with all its differences with people who do disagree with one another or not look like one another. And that is something that can be a benefit of the quote unquote one size fits all model where, okay, we are, we are, we will belong to this church and maybe we do not all think in the same way or, or we are not all experiencing the service in the same way, but we're all here together. Whereas a, a version of religion that's more bespoke or, or more exactly calibrated to our, our personal um, situations does not allow for that kind of dynamic within, within the structure. Well, one thing I think that was already dying is the, was the geographically based mm-hmm. uh, church. And the coronavirus may have, I, there's a decent chance that the coronavirus pandemic has sort of pushed that to the brink of death. And mm-hmm. so this idea that we just go to church and in our neighborhood is, is done. Mm-hmm. Um, is there any hope for institutional religions to reach out to the religiously remixed or, or is everything lost and we're just going to continue to see uh, a watering down of institutional affinity in America? I'm not sure. I, I wouldn't presume to pre- make a prediction, but I would say that's two more things. hopeful than I thought you were going to okay. say. <laughs> I, I, I think two things. I think that religious institutions have so, in many cases, justifiably lost public trust. And this is also true of, of civic institutions. I mean, it's true of our media, it's true of our politics. But I think that any kind of return to an institutional model or to a more of an institutional model would demand good institutions. It would demand institutions that can take accountability. It would demand institutions that um, earn the trust of people. And I think so much, so much of the uh, dynamic of intuitionalism or anti-institutionalism isn't about, it's not really about belief. It's not really about faith. Um, it's not about like, quote unquote, secularism. It's about mistrust. And I think that that is the the thing that needs to be restored. I don't think, um, I think there's a sort of easy narrative where like millennials just want to do their own thing. And those kids these days don't like rules. Um, I don't think that's true. I think, I think this is a story of institutional failure, not like millennial preference. That said, I think a place in which we might be optimistic about the return of organized religion or the return of institutions, good institutions, is the fact that these remixed phenomena, they don't necessarily have the kind of things that would allow them to have a shelf life. You know, it is, it is hard to get a community together. It is hard to get a consensus. It is um, at times lonely and isolating to, to be in such an atomized world with, with one's own self-identified tribe. And there, there may be, and I've certainly anecdotally seen a, a, a degree of hunger for something that feels more solid, more substantial, that has more clear-cut demands. Um, I don't think we're seeing like a mass return to religion. But I'm seeing, um, an, I'll say, anecdotally seeing a curiosity about what traditional uh, forms of religious practice might offer, 
even as those things are no longer the the default, say. So people are shopping, but we'll see if they buy. Exactly. And I think the uh, the narrative of shopping, the language of shopping is actually incredibly apt because I think so much now of how we culturally conceive of our identities is as consumers, is as people who are defined uh, and self-defined by what we choose. And that extends to what religion we choose, what brand we want to espouse in our own selves and how our religious identity fits into that. I certainly do not think this is a good thing, um, but I think it may be an inevitable thing under the consumerist capitalist model in which we live. Well, I feel like the uh, maybe some of the sticking point is the return policy on, <laughs> on, on certain sacraments and institutions is not so generous, which may uh, keep people away. Uh, Tara, we do have one final question for you before you go. If you could canonize one person, living or dead, Catholic or not, fictional or real, who would it be and why? And I'll remind you that last time you canonized um, Prince Mishkin from Dostoevsky's The Idiot. Oh, man. Oh, well, <laughs> gosh, I can't say that one again. Um, who, um, I like holy fools. I want to canonize all holy fools. Um, do you see any modern day holy fools running around? Wish I did. We need more of them. Um, see, my husband just said the Dolly Parton who made a saint. I heard it whispering. <laughs> Wait, well, what, what did he say? <laughs> no, but, but we just but the reason I'm laughing is just before we sat down, um, we were talking about Dolly Parton in the kitchen, and my husband uh, felt that Dolly Parton should be made a saint. Um, so you know what? I will I will uh, speak for us both. I will double down on uh, for our household. In affirming yes. uh, the, although I can't Love take credit it. for it, the the sainthood of Dolly Parton, or when what I mean by this, and I'm like I think this is actually where we were coming from, is not only her extremely uh, wonderful legacy of, of charity and good works, but also the way in which, in creating herself, has has managed to to ground the values of of a kind of certain kind of authenticity, even, even as sort of aesthetically embracing certain kinds of a- aesthetic artificiality, one might say, um, that there is a kind of purity and honesty to the way that Dolly Parton is open about the way in which she creates herself, which I think in turn lends itself to a kind of purity in the process. So, so let's hear it for St. Dolly. Yes. Love St. Dolly, pray for us. <laughs> Tara, congratulations on the book. It is Strains rights and it is available wherever books are sold and it shipped. will be on uh, yes june 16th it was supposed to come out today but it's been delayed a month for covid reasons so it'll be out june 16th but you can pre-order it it's great and you should pre-order it and where can people follow you uh you can find me on twitter at notorious tib or on my website tara isabella burton.com thank you so much for joining us hey thank you so much Now it's time for some housekeeping. First, we want to say thank you to a new member of our Patreon community, Alex Vaughn. Thank you so much for your support. We couldn't do the show without our Patreon members. Um, so you can become a member at patreon.com slash America Media. 
And we have one request for all our listeners, whether you're patrons or not. If you really like the show, please help spread the word. Tell someone about it. Find your favorite episode that you've uh, ever listened to. Maybe it's an interview with someone like Sarah Silverman or Cyrus Habib, or just pick the most recent one and forward it to a friend that you think who might be interested in Jesuitical and the topics we cover. Yes, I know personally I find new podcasts through word of mouth. So this is a great way to spread the word about Jesuitical if you're a fan of the show. And maybe just CC us on the email and we'll chime in and guilt them even more. <laughs> we have done that in the past. <laughs> yeah, so just CC Jesuitical at americamedia.org and we will help convince your friend to listen to our podcast, unless you think that's a bad idea. No, just do it. And now, Consolations and Desolations, the part of our show where we talk about where we found God this week and where it was harder to find God. What do you have, Zach? I I hope this doesn't come across as a cop-out because I have tried really hard, but I was talking to Father Eric about how I've been struggling to to pray during this like time of quarantine because so much of my like, like even when I'm talking to friends in during a happy hour or something, the normal thing that I would talk about is what I've been doing in my life, right? And turns out it's just this, it's the same thing every day. And so when I bring that to prayer and I try to start a conversation with God about okay, what's been going on? It's it's really felt pretty monotonous. And I know that I'm sort of being invited to pay attention to smaller things happening, these, you know, moments between me and my wife or the different relationships I have with the things around me. But I'll be honest, it feels like the type of thing that only saints are able to direct their attention to. And I am definitely not there yet. (laughs) (laughs) And so this has really just kind of felt like a period of neither consolation or desolation, but almost just just waiting, right? And trying to to learn how to pray in a new way. And I can't say I know what that looks like on the other end, but I I am cognizant of the fact that I feel like I'm being formed to to notice different things in my life than I normally do. So that's my non-consolation nor non-desolation this week. I think a lot of people can probably relate to that. We've all signed on to the Zoom call and been like, so what's up, guys? And everyone's just like, mm, nothing. Yeah, nothing. <laughs> so it's, it's not surprising that that would carry over to your prayer life. Um, so yeah. I, I know I can relate. Well, what do you have this week? Uh, I have a consolation. Um, for the past couple of weeks, I've been trying to decide what to do in terms of housing in the coming months. And there's just a lot of uncertainty around that. So my, I have a lease that's ending at the end of the month. Um, and you know, I was thinking, okay, do I extend the lease? Do I move my stuff into storage? Do I move? And I had put all of this weight and emotion onto this decision. And it was like, like a lot of people, I'm feeling anxious and a little depressed. And I like was like, okay, whatever I decide here is going to decide my happiness for the next year. So I need to make this decision right. And when when I put all that weight on the decision, it was just like debilitating and scary and stressful. And that's not how St. Ignatius would have anyone make a decision. Um, and so I, I, I wouldn't say I brought it to prayer because I don't think it I didn't consciously do that, but I did take a step back and just kind of like play through the different scenarios, see what it made me feel, talk to friends, talk to my family. And at the end of all that, I really did come to that place that Jesuits talk about of indifference 
where I, where I realized that I was putting things into this decision that had nothing to do about the physical place where I was going to be living. Like no matter where I am living, like me and the problems I have and the anxieties I'm dealing with will follow me. <laughs> um, and so like I needed to kind of detach um, kind of my emotions and all of that from this decision. And once I did that, I really did kind of feel indifferent. I was like, okay, I could live at home. I could live in New York. Um, either way, God is going to be with me. And either way, I'm going to have to bring my struggles to prayer with him. And, you know, it, whatever decision I make is not going to change that. And it was, it was just very freeing. Um, so I, I guess the consolation was the realization that like, yeah, whatever I decided, God was going to be there, even if that also meant that I was going to be there. <laughs> well, I'm glad that, selfishly, I'm glad that you're moving back to the city. Yes, the time. me too. <laughs> uh, me too. <laughs> and, you know, good discernment, whether it benefits me or not. <laughs> yep. <laughs> Added benefit. All right, get us out of here. Will do. Judge Whittacle is produced by Sebastian Gomes. Our editor is Noah Levinson. Faith Formation provided by Father Eric Sundrup. You can follow us on Twitter at Judge Whittacle Show. You can find us on Facebook at facebook.com slash groups slash Judge Whittacle. Please subscribe to us on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your favorite podcasts and leave us a review. Judge Whittacle is a production of American Media in New York City. For American Media, I'm Ashley McKinless with Zach Davis. We'll see you next week. This week's episode is sponsored by the Loyola Marymount University Online Doctoral Program in Educational Leadership for Social Justice. It's designed for working professionals who want to create a more just and equitable future. This LMU doctorate degree is offered completely online and centers on values-based education, equipping graduates to lead meaningful change in their organizations. To learn more, please visit soe.lmu.edu slash doctoral. That's soe.lmu.edu slash doctoral.